Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Andrew Godwin, and you're listening to The ChangeLog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The ChangeLog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 229, and today, Jared and I are talking about Django and Python with Andrew Godwin. Andrew is known for raising money for Django features. We talked about sustainability, a lot of fun stuff around how he's funded open source. We talked about Python, what's new in Python, how to get into Python. We also talked about Django channels, what they are, how they work, what the status of the project is, and how they compare against Action Cable or Phoenix channels. We have three sponsors today, Heap Analytics, GoCD, and also our friends at TopTile. First sponsor of the show is Heap Analytics. Check out heapanalytics.com slash changelog. Heap automates away the annoying parts of user analytics. No manual event tracking, no messy tracking plans, no custom ETL pipelines, just insights for everyone on your team. And I talked with one of their customers, Alan DeSalza, the director of product analytics for LendingClub.com. Alan shared some insights into the value they get from Heat. Take a listen. Very quickly, we realized that we were not good at anticipating every single question that would come up. We could get questions from different departments about how many people are looking at this agreement on this page or how many people clicked on this particular link in a seven-day period. You know, 99% of the time, that link actually has no value uh, until that discrete question comes up. And those moments are tough, right? So we really wanted something that addressed that. Okay, so here you are, you've got Heap installed, very low burden on your engineering team to get in place. You don't have to go through and individually track events or taps or predict the future basically, but you've got all this data in Heap and obviously we're all data driven. Talk to me about how you get value from all this data being in Heap. Data is really hot. Everyone's talking about it. People are creating tons and tons of data. Every tool lets you export raw data and do this and do that. So people have a ton of data, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting anything valuable out of it or you're able to answer questions or inform your decision-making process using data and incorporate it into day-to-day things. And that's not valuable. What is valuable is the tool that might have large amounts of data in the background, makes it seamless for you to to phrase a question and get an answer to that question in real time. What you really need is the tool that is able to work with you and create value out of all this data that might be there in the back end. I mean, Keep is the only tool that I've encountered that, that lets everyone instantly answer business questions. Very cool. Thanks, Ellen, for speaking with me. For the listeners out there who want to check out Heap, go to heapanalytics.com slash changelog. Do not Google it. Go to that URL. It's the URL we're getting credit for, heapanalytics.com. And now on to the show. All right, we're back. We got a fun show lined up. It's, it's Python Django Day, Jerry. What do you think about that? Django. <laughs> I just can't think. I just have, I just think about Django and Jane every single time. Every single time. I, I don't know if it's been helpful or hurtful to the brand of Django. What do you think? Of course, surely the Django project predates Django the movie. Yeah. But not in my mind, it doesn't. That's for sure. We, we can't talk much further, though. We got to introduce our guest, Andrew Godwin. Hello. That's right. Andrew Godwin, thanks for joining us. No problem. It's my pleasure to be here. Jared, you should open up with that thing you said your friend said. Well, what was that about? <laughs> so the first person that ever introduced me to Django uh, was a fella that pronounced it Django. 
<laughs> and when he said it, it's like one of those double takes, like, what, what'd you say? You know, and he's like, Django. And he was the first person that had ever, you know, said the word to me. And, and he's talking about the framework. And I was like, it didn't sound right, but I wasn't quite sure. And so I was like, okay. And I kind of rolled with it for a little while. So in my head, I was reading it to Django, but I had a feeling that wasn't it. Um, and kind of just waiting for somebody else to confirm or deny. And then it didn't take very long. Uh, I have never heard anybody else in the history of my life say it like that ever again. But would it be somebody else's life? I guess it would have been. So, Andrew, what do you think about that? How do you say it? You don't say Django, do you? I, I definitely say Django. I, I, I have heard Django before. Um, one of the jokes when I joined the community was that a good number of people said Django. Um, and there was actually a talk at one of the first Django cons about why, by a linguist, about why it's actually Django, not Django. But yeah, it's def- definitely more common than, than you might think. Django. Well, see, I think Jared's is different, though, because Django is fine, and that's, that's okay. <laughs> well, yeah. But the Django... Well, not if you're a linguist. It's, it's far-fetched. A linguist probably would, would uh, disagree with the Django as well. But what does the word even mean? I've never even looked it up. I, I, so I, like the origins of it, it comes from Django Reinhardt, who is a famous gypsy jazz guitarist. Um, and okay. one, of the, one of the founders of the framework was a big fan of his, and so that's where the name came from. Um, okay. so it's, just, it's just a name, basically. For some reason, I think about a kangaroo. Is that, not the, is that a different thing? Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it might be a dingo. Uh, yeah, you've got you've got the two films as well, Django and Django Unchained. Wow, Jared. <laughs> a dingo is a uh, is a wild dog from Australia. Yeah. I'm just gonna be, I'm just gonna be quiet for a while. You let you guys talk. <laughs> Dingoes are great. So, in in the interest of getting to good content, uh, Andrew, take us back. We we like to get kind of a history of our guests, and obviously, we're gonna dive deep into. Django, not the Django or Django or whatever else you want to say it might be. Take us back into your history. Where did you get in your start in programming or even open source? Well, so my my start in programming is a little bit unusual. Um, I started programming on a Palm Pilot 3X, I think it was. Wow. Um, So my mother had a Palm Pilot and it had a basic sort of um, had a basic interpreter on it. And so I was there on holiday just like, like writing basic games on with a stylus on a touchscreen, which is the suboptimal way to program in any situation. Um, and that's, I sort of got my start there, like writing like basic like music keyboard stuff and basic games. And then from there, I kind of branched out into some web stuff. So I've been doing a little bit of HTML around the edges of there and like going to my local library. Because, you know, at this I was like, I say 14, 15 at the time. So we had dial-up internet, but the library had proper internet. So I go down the road to the library. I do their computers, do some websites. And that suddenly sort of morphed into... Well, how do I add JavaScript to the website? How do I add some PHP? And then I started doing PHP development. And my very first open source project, um, which I think is about 2005, 2006, was one called ByteHoard, which is this PHP interface for uploading and downloading files. It was very simplistic, had several rather bad security vulnerabilities in it, which, of course, is part of the course for your first PHP project. <laughs> um, but it was, it was this wonderful feel-good thing, because like, I, I released it open source, and there weren't many... I'd say, in retrospect, moderately well-designed ones at the time. And so I got some people using it, like, you know, an energy company in the Netherlands. Like, at some point, some part of NASA said they were using it, which I found kind of crazy when I was, a, you know, a teenager. Wow. Um, I think it was just like some tiny broom closet somewhere in NASA. But still, it was fun to hear from somebody over there with a NASA.gov email address. And that's kind of my first experience. Like, for about two or three years, I ran the Byte Horde project, um, making my PHP skills better, doing some freelancing, but sort of 
very much a single man open source operation. Just like, it's just me. I'm just fixing these bugs. Did one rewrite to try and fix security holes. It was a lot better after that, thankfully. Um, and then I think it was about, let's see, it was 2006 it would have been. Um, I'd just gone to university. Uh, during university, I was working part-time in the holidays and the vacations at a agency called Torchbox in Oxfordshire. And it was there I met Simon Willison. Simon Willison is one of the co-creators of Django. And if you've ever met Simon, or if you've ever even heard him speak, he is one of the most enthusiastic people I've ever met. And it was about a week and a half of being exposed to this enthusiasm, I'd, I'd switched to doing Django rather than PHP at that, at that point. Um, so it was a sort of very sort of tour de force entry into doing Python and Django. And I'd done a bit of um, Turbo Gears and Old Web Framework at the time, but like to switch to doing mostly Django was sort of that, that was the big change, catalyzed by Simon in many ways. Mm. Um, and then, so I sort of was doing that. And about two years, I was just doing, again, just doing Django projects on the side at university. And then it was 2008, I believe. I we were sitting down at the agency. We had this problem. We wanted to change our database schema. Django at the time was very bad at this. It just it made new tables and nothing else. And so me and a friend of mine, um, a coworker there, sat down, planned out what we'd like to see in a migrations framework, borrowing something from Ruby on Rails at the time, from Active Record, and borrowing some stuff from Java's Hibernate and a few other things. And I made South the Django migrations framework. And I sort of, but we wrote it, it worked for our purposes, very, very bare bones, stuck it up on the internet, published it somewhere, got a pretty reasonable uh, sort of level of interest, I would say. And then I think it was like a couple of weeks later, um, Jacob Kaplan Moss, who is another co creator of Django, emails me. He says, Hey, Andrew, we have the first DjangoCon happening, you know, I think it was like four weeks away at that point in San Francisco. And we have a panel on database migrations. And we already have. They had Simon there talking about his one called Demigrations. And uh, Russell Keith McGee talking about his one, which was Django Evolution. He says, would you like to come and talk with the panel? Um, we, can, we can fund your flight and get you over here. And by the time, I am a student in university. I am, I am not well off by any means at this point. So I go, if you're going to fly me to San Francisco, sure, I will, I will take that offer. And so with a couple of weeks to spare, I book a flight to San Francisco. I foolishly book, I think it was three days um, in the Bay Area for an 11 hour flight from London, which you never do, is my advice. Um, and then flew over here and then did, did that first JangoCon. I think that, that was kind of the, the trial by fire of, of my involvement with Django. And like, yeah. since then, South has got more and more popular and eventually ended up being sort of merged into Django 1.7. Very cool. So uh, just for the listener's sake, we, we forgot to mention that Andrew is one of the Django core developers. You're also an engineer currently at Eventbrite. That's right. Also, this show was put together in thanks to our ping repo and a whole host of people who hopped in when Python was mentioned and said, yes, let's do this. So we want to give a shout out to a few people, JL Duggar, DeGustaf, Frank Wiles, and Freakboy3742 <laughs> uh, for, for helping us line this show up and saying, if we're going to talk about Django, we got to be talking to Andrew Godwin. Um, for many reasons, but also the major reason is because of your work on Django channels, which we'll be talking about in detail upcoming. But what I find interesting about your, your history is that Django really brought you to Python and it wasn't like, uh, you didn't come to Python for Python. You kind of came for Django and you stayed for the Python. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I had experimented with Python before, like, you know, I, I has, it was about that time I was reaching the end of what PHP was capable of, like PHP 4 
was a very limiting language. Like it's got a lot better since, but back then it was very limiting language. And so I've been experimenting with different sort of alternative languages. You of course had Java, you had Python. Um, Ruby was a little, a, a lot more nascent back then. I hadn't really heard of it. Mm-hmm. So I played around a little bit in Python, but Django is really that catalyst that got me to sort of go whole hog into Python. Be like, no, like this is the language I'm going to learn, become my primary language. And I, like many people, I think I learned a lot of Python through Django. Yeah. So interesting. We were talking before the call, Adam and I, and the conversation was kind of like, why would you choose Python? Or I think Adam, even more generally, your question was like, why do people choose one language over the other? Yeah. Yeah. Like he always wonders, like, what's the impetus, the reason? And in your case, it was very much because of a web framework that you liked or wanted to use. Um, But if if somebody's getting into Python today, let's say they don't do web, like what are some of the draws of Python, the language? Uh, why somebody might pick it up as their first language or their next language. Before he answers that, though, I want to pause for one second because something he said, Jared, there was, he said primary language. So I think that'd be a good tweak on the question I was asking, which is like, why would they choose a certain language as their primary language? Mm, okay. Yeah. So it, it's an interesting question because like, you know, I say primary language. I am very much a person who believes you should choose more than one programming language, like use the yes. right tool for the right job. Um, I think Python works very well for the sort of work that I do because like, so there are various things. It's very hard to explain. Like if you've ever seen the Zen of Python, it's a sort of like this short poem about what Python really, it really means to be. And things like explicit is better than implicit, for example. So one of the differences that I personally prefer Python over Ruby say is that like imports are very explicit. You can trace where things happen very easily. Mm. But in, in the majority, it's very much like Python is an easy language to write. It's got a decent typing system that isn't too crazy. Like it can enforce some stuff, but it's a little bit flexible, but it's not as, say, lax as JavaScript is. It has a good sort of set of like data models and built-in stuff. Like the standard library is very useful. A lot of stuff comes with it, and that's true of Django as well, sort of extended out to web stuff. And it's just like, and the community is really nice. And like this sort of combination of all those stuff, there's no one thing, right? It's this sort of bundle of like, it's nice to use, it's easy to write, it's easy to read, which is a super important thing. I used to write some Perl, that is not easy to read at all. Right. Um, it's easy to maintain, like you can style it pretty well. Like the combination of all those things, I think really kept me in the language. Like I, I approached it one with one thing and then like a whole set of things conspired. So this is, this is a nice place to be. Like I enjoy doing this. Like it's a good, the cycle of writing stuff in this language is, works really well for me. I spent about six months myself writing Python uh, day by day and I really enjoyed it. I, I don't have any problem with significant white space, even being a person who mostly writes Ruby and JavaScript. Mm. Uh, I've always, I like significant white space. It, it, it saves on uh, parentheses and, uh, and curly braces and doesn't bug me, but some people just can't get over that. Um, one thing that I loved about it was the documentation. And that just seems like you talk about the community and kind of the overall thing is you, you add all these things up and you get something that's really nice. And it just seems like the Python community is so documentation oriented or first or um, there's this like built in thing that makes it really easy to pick up. And me, I mean, I didn't know anything about Python coming into it, but I got up, ramped up very quickly because the docs, both for the language and the standard library and for anything else you might grab off the shelf, they're all pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like a community thing, like like. I'd say that Ruby is probably better at testing as community and, and maybe yeah. Python's a bit better at documentation. But like it's definitely this thing of like it is considered like a product isn't even launched till there's like a decent documentation. Like a lot of the solutions for doing good documentation have come out of the Python community, like Sphinx and read the docs and stuff like that. Like they're all sort of rooted in Python itself. 
Um, and that's probably one of the things that got me to stay too, is like as a, as a beginning programmer out in Python going, oh, there's this huge, like extensive standard library kind of be like full of examples as well. Like I, I'm an example oriented learner. So like that was, a, that was an amazing thing for me. There were good books as well. Um, I think dive into Python was a thing I learned at the time that was really good back then. And so like just this whole host of like endless reams of information that you could just turn to. And like, even now, like I don't know all the standard library. I just, I know whereabouts in the documentation to look if I forget, right? That's what I learned. Right. It's like, oh, if I want to remember exactly how, say, like ordered dicts work, I can go and look in that part, like the collections page. It's more like having this index of where to look rather than having to know everything off, offhand. You mentioned read the docs and it just reminded me of a recent show of Request for Commits, episode five. I'll just submit that as something that people should go listen to. Uh, Eric Holscher came on the show and talked to Nadia and Michael all about read the docs and documentation and Write the Docs, which I had never heard of, a very cool uh, conference for technical writers and people who care about documentation, get together, talk about the best ways of doing it, tips and tricks, just this whole community around documentation that's like really refreshing and like seems to be underground in the open source community, at least, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, like I, I, I try to stay abreast of what's going on and I was like blown away by how much Eric and everybody involved in Read the Docs and Write the Docs have been up to and Many of us don't seem to know about it. So um, curious your thoughts on read and write the docs, uh, Andrew, and, and everybody go check out uh, RFC episode five. It's a good one. Yeah, like it, to me, it's a really important thing. Like, like I have turned into a documentation first developer. Like you might say like testing first, whatever. like I will generally, like especially with like channels we'll discuss later, I wrote down the entire sort of basic documentation API I wanted to give to people before I actually wrote the code. Like the idea being that like that's kind of, that's kind of my UX, right? That's how I, like, how would I, as, uh, like, being my own devil's advocate, want to approach a project I'd never seen before? Like, how would I want to be introduced to that thing? What would I expect to see? How, how should things behave? And, like, for me, writing documentation and getting that down on paper is not both a great way of telling other people. It's a great way of, like, getting yourself to be on the right track and understanding what you're doing and, and sort of cementing yeah. what you're trying to work on. It reminds me of something Jameis Buck said years ago about how he designs uh, libraries because he he's a Ruby developer uh, amongst other things and writ, or like Capistrano and and uh, Net SSH and a whole bunch of tooling and libraries in the Ruby world and he was talking about his the way he goes about building these projects like where do you start with and of course we've had the movement readme for readme driven development which yeah. uh, is kind of along the lines of documentation driven but it's like if all your docs can fit in the readme that's good um, a lot of times you need to go beyond that but. He said like he always designed the API first. Like he wouldn't write any code. Like he would think, how would I want to use this? Right. And he designed the library API. And the beauty about the Ruby language is it is so flexible and the, the DSLs are so easy to craft that you can come up with like what is a fun and beautiful to use API. And then you back into the code once you have the API finished. And it seems like as you, it's a very similar idea that you're talking about where it's like, if I'm writing the actual documentation first for this library or this tool that I'm building, I get to think about it as the end user, the person who's coming to it and reading the docs and saying, is this going to be what I need or not? And then I can go and fill in the gaps with the code. I think it's a really powerful way of building things. Right. And like, e like even in Python, like Python is less flexible than Ruby, but you still have a lot of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Like we have, there's still metaprogramming. There's still like various thing, tricks like that. And so generally like, in my perspective, like part of it is also is the principle of least surprise. And so mm. an API should still be like what we call Pythonic. It's just still like not be full of like crazy hacks or like it's full of declarative classes that magically work. Like magic is a bad word, but like say so part of it is like right. an, API, an API that is both nice to use, but also like 
is similar to other stuff and is not very surprising and is like easy to debug. And so there's a whole sort of spectrum of different things I would I would consider. But part of that is documentation, like trying to write down like how would you run this, how would you test this, how would you de- deploy this, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's like Kenneth Wright has made himself you know very famous not just in the Python community but in the programming community, the open source community. Because of how great you know the APIs he's created around HTTP requests and a lot of that honestly is like he does a really great job of documenting that and like selling it as a thing that you'd want to use and so that that that's an example I guess of a success story inside of just caring a lot about your documentation. Well, what exactly do you classify as documentation? Simply where you go to learn about how to use it or like getting started guides. What where does documentation begin and end? I'd say there's a whole different set of things. Like you've got reference documentation, which is usually things like, oh, here are the methods, here's the errors you can raise, and here's things you can call. And that's usually like at the end of a project, I would write that stuff. It's like, well, this is the exact spec of what you should expect. Like, you know, these are the four errors this function could raise, like, and this is the set of scenarios. And then there's more sort of an overarching guide, which would be like sort of almost an architectural overview or like an introduction of like what the thing is, what it's trying to achieve, and the sort of the concepts. And that's that's kind of what I put in the the getting started guide slash sort of introductory end of stuff. And so I'd usually probably write a a getting started or tutorial first. Like the goal being that a novice programmer should be able to use the thing I'm writing, or so rather someone with no experience of the domain I'm writing in should be able to use it. Um, but generally, I try and think of like you know I want any programmer to come along and be able to use this, and not only be able to use it and get stuff done but make it really hard for them to shoot themselves in the foot, which is a very important part of writing a library. So like how can we make it nice, but safe and like approaching it from that end generally. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a couple of different aspects there's a reference and re- even release notes are important too. Like release notes are the sort of temporal documentation, like what's changing in a project? Like what do I have to do when I upgrade? And like mm-hmm. a lot of projects don't have good release notes and that, that does sometimes irk me a little bit. I think sometimes, you know, as a maintainer, you may get so focused on the future and where you're going, you kind of forget where you came from and maybe how you're currently using whatever it might be. And this is totally just a abstract example, but, you know, sometimes you just forget, like, how do you go from one version to the next or a bigger upgrade or, you know, move from one version to, to the next. It's just a larger, you know, transition than maybe before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, this is a problem you have, like one of the things of being an open source maintainer that I did not really appreciate before I was one was that it is very difficult to see the wood for the trees as to use a phrase like it's it's very difficult to understand the external like you're always living in the most current code with all the current bugs all the issues being filed like the perspective of somebody who's like oh they're you know like on a two versions behind their their site's stable they they want one new feature you've just announced like that's a very different perspective and getting a good insight into what that perspective is is sometimes very difficult for an open source yeah Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also crucial to have like and and having been on both sides of the fence like having used open source as well as, as maintaining it i try and think about like what i appreciate in when i use open source tools and try and provide at least as much of that as i can myself mm-hmm. well i think it's a natural place to take our first break on the other side we will dive into django what's new what's the flagship features of django why would you want to use it from andrew's perspective as well as a deep conversation on it uh Anders baby which is Django channels. So we'll be right back and we'll talk about those things after this break. 
Our friends at ThoughtWorks have an awesome open source project to share with you. GoCD is an on-premise, open source, continuous delivery server that lets you automate and streamline your build test release cycle for reliable continuous delivery. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for your team with ease, and the Value Stream app lets you track a change from commit to deploy at a glance. The real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end -end workflow so you can get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit go.cd slash changelog for a free download. It is open source. Commercial support is also available and enterprise add-ons as well, including disaster recovery. Once again, go.cd slash changelog. And now back to the show. All right, we are back with Andrew Godwin, and we're here to talk about Django. So, Andrew, let's kick it off like this. Um, many of our listeners have used Django. Many have not. We have lots of web developers. Uh, we have a whole group of listeners out there, and they're coming from different perspectives. So let's just start off kind of with a high level of what Django is and does in 2016, and then we'll kind of drill down from there. So what are the flagship or the major features of Django as a web framework? I know one of them, which I've always been jealous of, is a built-in admin, but surely there's lots of other things it does for you. So give us the rundown on what Django looks like today. Sure. So yeah, I mean, as you said, the main one, sort of our main star attraction that everyone gets one into the project is the admin. And that's sort of yeah. the thing that when it was launched was the big thing. Like, so basically the idea is Django has this fully featured ORM um, that sort of you declare models. It has migrations on those models. You can declare custom field types. It has a very extensible like query framework and all this kind of stuff. Um, but like you declare your models and then it just makes an admin for you. And that's one of the big sort of get get developing fast features. It's like, oh, we can just take the admin and then we can just like immediately put things in, into the database and play around with it. And some sites even run with the admin in production, although usually you want to try and do something a little bit different. Um, but there's many other fa many other features as well. So one of my favorite ones is the GIS framework, which is a little less known maybe. Okay. Um, but Django has a very extensive very powerful GIS framework for doing geospatial data or queries, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's built into the RM if you want it. So you can say like, oh, find me all posts that were made inside this polygon. It just, it just it's all in there and integrated. So that, that's super nice. Um, it has other things too. So it has a forms framework for doing display stuff. It's own templating language with extensibility as well. Mm. It has a views and URL routing framework. Sort of all the pieces you expect from a web framework really of like, sure. you can make URLs, you can route them, you have views. It has... Um, what we call generic views, which sort of takes some of the replication out of doing so. Like, oh, if you want to just have a view, which is like, you know, just accepts a form and saves it, there's built-in code for that already and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of other stuff it has. Uh, great documentation. Uh, well, obviously, yes, of course, great documentation. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that's kind of, I, I just kind of assume that, right? That's kind of just part of like, oh yeah, of course there's great documentation. It's part of my, yes, but of course, oh. Django has this um not only is there a django tutorial um there is full like prose like article style documentation on every major feature we have and reference documentation and there's excellent other so like the django girls tutorial is an excellent like second tutorial apart from the django one as well wow. so there's a really good culture of documentation around that and also there's a lot of sort of security um considerations you know django has a lot of like csrf protection built in like has places to put like cookie protection and HSTS and all this stuff. There's even, there's, we have things called middlewares. Mm -hmm. There's a security middleware where you can say, 
is my site secure? And let's just, it has run some checks for you. There's a thing, there's a command where you can check for common errors. And so like all of that stuff is bundled up into sort of one, one set of stuff. Um, but one of the things I think is most important about Django and the thing I try and stress, especially to people who are maybe new to Django, I don't use it a lot, is that one of the key features is that not only is it got all these components, but you can individually remove each component. They're all optional. Mm. So if you don't want the admin, it's a couple of lines to turn it off. If you don't want to use templates, you can swap in another one straight away. It's super easy. And so part of what Django's appeal to me has been over the last sort of eight, nine years I've been using it is the ability to, as I grow projects, I can replace the generic parts of Django with bits that are custom or slightly customize them. And like, I don't have to just throw the whole thing away. It's very loosely coupled. And so I can say, oh, I just, I want to use Ginger rather than Django templates here. I can just swap, you know, do a little bit of work, swap it out and it all works. It all works pretty well. So that's what I Mm. personally appreciate a lot about Django. It's like, when you when you get to that point, it steps away and like sort of falls away, and then you should put your own thing in place. Let's hop back to the GIS feature because that really caught my ear. Um, is that tied to us? Like, is that using Post GIS or is it using a specific backend? How's that whole thing fit together? How's it work? Well, so uh, much like Django has pluggable database backends, the GIS framework does as well. So it supports Postgres, it supports Oracle, it supports MySQL, mm. and maybe more support as well. But like those are the three I know about. But it has it has support for multiple backends, and it has like. Oracle and Post PostGIS, especially, they are fully featured geospatial databases, and as is the new and MySQLs as well. And it just supports all of those functionality out of the box, pretty much. It's just like it's you install a few libraries that are a little bit arcane. Right. Once you've got that done, it's pretty much plug and play. Yeah, I've used PostGIS a handful of times, and, and uh, via Rails, and I think directly a couple of times, and it's it's always a little bit of uh, you know wiggle this and you know pull that lever over there to get everything all working together, but uh, you can do amazing things once you have it up and running. So it's really cool that it provides kind of a a uh, adapter pattern to those type of queries and and lookups inside of the framework. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, and and even better, like yeah, you know, keeping with the theme, it has admin widgets. So like, if you make a point field or a polygon field and load the admin up, you get a map with a polygon on it. You can drag around and edit. So like, it's all just all that. You can just like start using it straight away. Like, oh, I want to see my yeah. what's my shape of London look like, and look, the admin will just show you on a map, which is super nice. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Django came out of a newspaper, correct? In Lawrence, as far as where it was born. And so it's kind of very much in that community of like online publishers and newspapers, these types of companies. I believe Eventbrite's using it. It makes sense uh, since you work there. Uh, but who else is using Django? Like what's the, what's the community look like and the companies and the, and the organizations that are involved in the greater Django community? Yeah, so as you mentioned, like Lawrence Journal World, the Lawrence newspaper was the first place Django was created and born out of and open sourced from. And it had initially a big traction in publishing newspapers, but these days it's pretty well spread. Um, I'd say the biggest one you've probably heard of is Instagram. Um, Instagram runs on Django as a backend. That's mm. sort of the biggest um, one we have that we know about. There may be other ones we don't know about. Um, generally, sure. knowing what things run Django is is interesting. Um, but obviously, like Eventbrite runs it as well. Uh, mm-hmm. We like. I'm very bad at knowing the list of companies who run Django. It's one of my <laughs> one of my tools. Um, I know. I know that like a decent number of government agencies like run at least some Django as well. Uh, oh, let's see. Um, one second here. That's all right. I didn't tell you to think about it. I put you on the spot. <laughs> should have get should have prepped you. But I just thought of the question because I just wanted to kind of nice to get an idea. Not just like, hey, how many big companies use this as like a street cred but just to kind of get an idea of what the community looks like in terms of participants and support obviously it's huge 
and you guys have DjangoCon and you have, you know, it's a long running project that thousands and thousands of people are using. But um, no, I think that's a, a good enough idea. Don't need to bang your head too much against uh, knowing which sites run on Django. Yeah. So, so what ones I can now, I can, I've now, I can now like remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got some maybe, too because I went to Wikipedia. Having maybe just like used to be typing just then. Uh, so among other things, I believe um, parts of Pinterest at least used to run on Django, which they still do. Hmm. Um, uh, parts of Spotify certainly used to. Um, and also like uh, the, um, a lot of Firefox and the Mozilla sites run on Django as well. Like mm-hmm. the whole of add-ons at Mozilla.org, I think increasingly more and more of all the Mozilla sites run on Django as well. Now the ones on uh, Wikipedia are Pinterest, as you mentioned, Instagram, as you mentioned, Mozilla, as you mentioned, then also the Washington Times, Discuss, Bitbucket, yeah. and Nextdoor. Oh, yes, of course, Nextdoor, yeah. Ah, Nextdoor. I think NASA does as well. He's part of, yeah, part of NASA runs on Django. Isn't Nextdoor an, is it a mobile app or is there also a website? Maybe it's just running their API? Maybe an API thing. Um, yeah. it's, one of, it's one of the things with Django, right, is that Django is, it's not easy to tell as long as a Django site. Like, there's no obvious giveaways. Like, Django is this flexible backend framework. So there's no, like, oh, you know, like, say WordPress, you could usually tell from the URL structure or something. But Django is like, mm-hmm. well, anything could be Django. And increasingly, a lot of things use Django as a backend or as an API for a native app or a rich JavaScript web app and something like that. And so sometimes the site won't even look like Django at all, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of Django churning away to just like serve everything behind, you know, and get it all good. Like Discuss, for example, Discuss is mostly embedded, of course. Um, but the whole Django thing there is like the API is driving all these embedded comments and JavaScript systems that they're using. And so a lot of Django is like this sort of, secret like behind the scenes getting stuff done kind of approach mm. that and we're, we're all quite fine with that like django core developer community kind of like we take pride in that we are a slightly boring predictable framework as kind of a point of pride for us it's like you know like oh no if you want something that's like stable and reliable like django is a very like decent choice these days and that, that, like personally especially I, I see a lot of pride in that it kind of touches a little bit on what jared and i talked about earlier which wasn't really like uh, back to that uh, choosing the language we talked a bit about you know, Django in terms of, uh, in Python in terms of, um, I guess, buzz, so to speak. And it seems like you, that community seems to be more focused on stability, as you just mentioned, versus like banging out brand new things and all this new stuff, you know, as, you know, similar to how JavaScript is just always new. Something's always new and there's a lot of fatigue in that arena. Well, I mean, part of it is the age of the language too, right? Like JavaScript as a development community, like JavaScript is an old language by itself, but yeah. and sort of the modern community around it is still quite young and like all the tooling and all that kind of stuff is still developing. Python is, you know, several decades old at this point. And like when I joined Python, there was still like some of that, some of that sort of buzz and like different options going around. And there still is in certain arenas too, but like there's now sort of this happy medium between like, well, we still have new stuff coming out and things still happen that are interesting. Um, like async IO was one of the big things in like Python three, five, for example, but at the same time, there's also this sort of stability and predictability and also like this history of Python, like Python is now so old that like big enterprise companies and universities will happily use it and teach it. And so we have this whole spectrum of like from novice to very experienced programmers from single developers to entire like huge enterprises using it. And like that kind of diversity of use is I think actually a really positive factor in what make, drives Python forward. Mm. And I think JavaScript especially will get there as it sort of matures and people, and you know, yeah. it'll go through the same process and we'll, we'll get, we'll get to the same place. I'm it's sure. just funny that you said the word boring. And I wonder if your 
you know, counterparts that uh, are core team members with you or users of Django or, you know, participants in the Python community will appreciate or agree. <laughs> certainly some of them will. I, I, I don't speak for everyone, of course, but like... Yeah, make everybody happy. Um, but certainly, like, I would say one of the things I can say is that in, in the Python community, the word magic is frowned upon. Mm. Like, right. if something is magic, it's considered bad. And so, in my mind, the opposite of magic is, like, boring and predictable, or at least, like, you know, very obvious. And so that's kind of what I aspire to, is, like, this software is predictable and easy to deploy and easy to understand and does the thing it says. And it's not terribly exciting, but it will save you a lot of time in your daily work. Like, that's what I really appreciate, like, as I, as I develop as a programmer, especially. Well, I think what you makes that choice, too, um, like we said before, choosing that language, is that... Uh, if you're choosing something with more fatigue, so to speak, you know, with more bleeding edge, more modern, however you want to phrase that, you know, you can expect some bumps. But if you need something to go smooth, you need something that's going to not drive you crazy, that's going to have clean, good documentation or even good tutorials to get started. Then what you said there was a, a good example of the right choice. Yeah. I and mean, of course, it doesn't hold entirely true. Like Python. So the Python 2 to 3 change was a big overhaul. And that's one of the most major things in recent history of Python. It's like, mm -hmm. this was a big change. It broke a lot of stuff. It was perhaps done the wrong way. Some people now consider, you know, things like that. And so like, you're not free from that kind of stuff. And, you know, in the same way, I'd say that a brand new language, you're probably going to find like more recent posts about it, more recent sort of developments and tutorials. But as you said, they, they do get outlated quicker as well as things move faster. So it's def definitely sort of a, a balance of those kind of things. And um, part of what I'm trying to do with Django is trying to like find where that balance is and like where is the balance between keeping things predictable and then pushing forward. What 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 is the state of the art? Like how do we advance as well? Interesting. Well, speaking of state of the art and advancements, uh, we do want to talk about Django channels, which is kind of seems to be the most exciting thing going on in the Django community right now <laughs> and something that you're heading up. Um, we are hitting our next break, so let's tee up channels and we'll talk all about them after this break. I talked to Daniel Reed, head of design at TopTile, about their new expansion into TopTile designers, doing for designers what they've done for developers. We talked about why TopTile works for designers, and this is what she had to say. As a designer, the big, or as any kind of creative person, the big overarching question is always like, how can you find inspiration? Um, and for me personally, and for a lot of creatives that I've spoken to, it's really about traveling, exploring, and being accountable for your own career. And I think as a top tile designer or a remote designer in general, the ability to be able to switch up your lifestyle, change contexts, meet new people, uh, have new ideas sort of infiltrated into your life, by having that freedom and flexibility is something that's absolutely fundamental to doing great work. That's the real power of TopTel, I feel. You're not just stuck with one product, one company, or even one agency, but you can choose to work on multiple occasionally or a range of different clients. Um, and I think that that keeps you fresh. It gets you involved in new technologies, different people, and is really fundamental for being sort of switched on as a designer. All right, that was Daniel Reed, head of design for TopTile. To learn more, go to toptile.com slash designers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash designers. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. And now back to the show. All right, Andrew, let's talk about Django channels. Seems like these days, most web frameworks are either adding channels as a feature or they're trying to some of them started off with channel support um, but 
you talked about boring and I don't, I don't think channels are boring. Uh, I think the general public is very interested and by general public, I mean our general public, <laughs> uh, not the people on main street, but the developers We're interested in channels because, uh, it's, you know, it provides a new way of interacting and some, some new features. There's lots to it. And like you said, uh, I guess during the break, it is a lower level kind of a behind the scenes thing, but lots of excitement around Django channels. So tell us, uh, give us the short history of the channels bit. Cause I believe it started as a, as a plugin or something and perhaps it's being integrated, but you know what you're talking about. Why don't you give me the rundown and I'll quit talking. Of course. Um, so yeah, channels is actually stems from about three or four years ago. So I'm, I'm sure your audience is aware of this, but if they're not, um, WebSockets came onto the scene about five or six years ago. It's sort of like this, mm-hmm. oh, we, we need bi-directional communication for the web. Like HTTP is not good enough. Mm-hmm. And so like a team of developers at the various browser manufacturers are sort of mainly Google, in fact, was sort of developing that this protocol of like, well, what kind of protocols should we have? How's it going to work? How are we going to encode it? It has to like start HTTP. And like, I was following at the time, like this development, like what is WebSockets? How is it going along? And back then I was actually um, using a Python framework called Eventlet, which is sort of a asynchronous programming framework for Python. And they had a WebSocket library and the spec was changing pretty much every month at that point. And so I put a few patches in to try and like keep it with the current spec. They like found security holes and found like replay attacks and stuff. Mm. Um, but then about, I think about three, my history is about, about three, four years ago, I think it stabilized pretty much. And then I sort of got interested in like, well, as the web evolves, we see like this trend towards websites being much more of like a heavy, like application, like, you know, single page applications is often one of the buzzwords you hear. And like right. website is this application, it's full of logic. It has to communicate with the backend server. And a lot of that's still being done over rest over normal HTTP. And that's great. That works really well for a lot of stuff. I appreciate the boringness of, of that. It's very well understood. Um, but for some things, it just doesn't work. Um, so an example, uh, to say from my real place of work uh, at Eventbrite, um, there's a seat map, what you can pick seats from. And the seats sh- uh, like gray off in real time as they're picked, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we did that using HTTP, we'd have to do, do sit there doing long polling and bundle it up on the on the back end and, and make sure it's all done efficiently. And we did, we did used to do that as well. Um, but the key thing is like WebSockets give you this really easy, quick, like efficient way of sending data backwards and forwards to and from the browser. Like it's a sort of stat, like it's not standard. Like it's a very slightly crazy protocol on the wire, um, but pretty much it is a datagram based protocol. You can send and receive packets. That's pretty much it. There's a lot of stuff under the scenes and it got bigger and bigger. And like I saw it as like, well, Obviously, as these applications get bigger and more complicated, they obviously will require more and more communication with the back end. And at some point, sockets make sense. And then Meteor comes along, and Meteor is the thing I see and go, ah, like everyone else, like, this is a really clever way of doing this, right? Meteor is this sort of great idea of like, we can use sockets to do data binding and, and send data both directions across the socket. And so I think Meteor was the spark for me initially of like, oh, we could do that in Django maybe. And then the problem is, of course, that um, for the listeners who aren't aware, Python is a single-threaded language at its core. Like we have a threading model, but the threading model is just time sharing on a single core. There's no actual multi-threading in there. Mm. Um, and on top of this, like support for what's called asynchrony, as in you can open lots and lots of like virtual threads and wait on sockets and do things out of order, only came in in Python 3.5. And so Django supports Python 2.7 and up. So we have the limitation there, like well. Python has to support, let's say, Django has to support all these different versions of Python. And in addition, 
when I was thinking about this a couple of years ago, Ace and Hair wasn't even mature yet. And so um, for a little while, um, Amaric Augustin, one of the core developers of Django, um, did some work with Bird Sockets with Django, and his work was was really quite good. Like he had a game of life where every cell in the game of life was an open WebSocket, which was actually kind of amazing. Like I really enjoyed that demo. Hmm. And I sort of did that, and like he he moved on from that, but it was still like a really nice proof of concept. And then about a year and a half, two years ago, I sort of Django migrations, which had previously been my baby, as you as you would, um, was done. Like merged. Um, some of the core developers had very kindly taken up a lot of the mantle of maintaining it. Um, I got a bit burnt out merging it in in the 1.7 release, and so I was sort of I like I was still helping out occasionally with migrations, but I was thinking, thinking, well, what else is Django missing? Right, like I spent eight years fixing this big hole in Django that I saw in 2006. What do I do now? And so I sat down and thought, well, in my opinion, and what I'm excited about is WebSockets. I'm excited about these things in the browser. Like I, I you know, I also do game development on the side. Sometimes I'm like, well, can we do games in the browser? Like, what's that mm. look like? Like, we obviously need sockets for that for like proper real-time communication. And so I sat down and started like sketching out sort of like a prototypical, like how would this API work? Like how would I want it to work? And then seeing, could I do this with Django? Could I do this with Python even? And it's difficult. Like there are solutions out there already and they always have been for a long time that rely on a separate process running that that process is using a asynchronous framework, be it Twisted or Tornado or AsyncIO or GEvent or one of the many other ones that Python has. And that framework is capable of handling the idea of lots of simultaneous connections. And if you have this framework running a separate process, that can handle WebSockets and then everything's good. And it sort of communicates somehow with the main server over some kind of socket. And then you can get sort of socket support, but it's not, it's not properly there. And there are a lot of downsides to the solution. Like the first thing is that server generally only handles WebSockets. You can't just point your server at that that, that server. You gotta have like Nginx in front and then mm-hmm. have like path-based routing. Like, well, if you see the path slash WS, go to the WebSocket server, otherwise go to the main server. It gets a bit tricky. Um, and on top of that, another part of it is HTTP2. And like WebSockets are not the only thing changing in the web. Like HTTP2 is also coming in and it's coming in in force. And you know, it's been a slow build, but it's getting there. And H2 also has a lot of changes in terms of how things are served. Like it no longer has this pure request response model that HTTP has. Like HTTP is great. Like you get a request, you single threadedly handle the request, you return a response, and then you just return to the top of the loop and keep going. It's easy to write. CGI sorted this like many, many decades ago. It's an understood paradigm. And then HTTP2, like part of it, you, know, you can have concurrent requests that you can sort of work out with some like multiple server processes. But it also has things like you can push information from the server in real time and like other things that, and all this sort of brings on the same like feeling and texture, like, well, this is all real time stuff that is no longer a request response cycle. And at that, that point, I sort of sat down and went, well, let's think bigger than WebSockets. Like, what would it take to bring Django to be a general protocol framework? Like, what would it take to be handle HTTP 1, mm. HTTP 2, WebSockets? like Internet of Things protocols coming up as well. Like there's several of those. They're, like, they're very lightweight, of course, because it's the Internet of Things is very limited as bandwidth. But like those also have API servers. And like, what do we do for those? And like trying to envision this plan of like, what would it take to build a framework or like build into Django a framework for the future of the web, the future of the internet? Like how do you write a system that handles all these different protocols and styles of communication while still being like Django? And that's kind of the, the, the track I settled on um, back when I started channels. This doesn't sound boring at all. 
<laughs> no. Well, it's a, it's all infrastructure, right? And I find infrastructure really interesting, but some people find the it very future boring. of the web is what you said. The future. You're building the future of the web here. Well, I, I have the, I have the ability to make it sound very exciting. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> You're succeeding. You need a hype person behind you, like that uh, Geico commercial. No, it's it's a uh, progressive. There's like a hype man behind that uh, behind flow. Go. He has them. I've seen them out I, there on the web. My PR team is here behind me giving me advice. So, you know, I'll, I'll defer <laughs> to them on that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, 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 you know, it's, 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 I like big challenges, right? That's what, I'm, that's what I'm attracted to as a developer. Like, as I've grown as a developer, I've gone more and more towards the sort of like software architecture slash networking slash infrastructure end of stuff. And so that, that's always held my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and channels is very much the idea of like, well, how do we do this? And for the longest time, I couldn't do it. Like, I kept doing ideas, none of them worked, or they were ugly, or they performed really badly, which even if it looks like if it performs like way worse than Django, it's not worth doing. Um, and then eventually, the current design of channels I hit on about a year and a half ago now, I would say. Um, sat on it for a while, like sat there trying to prototype it and test it and like going, is this really okay? Does it really work? And then like asked a few like close developer friends of mine saying like, can you, can you like double check this and make sure I'm not crazy or like overestimating this? And then finally, like when I was happy that it was like at least only a little less performant and had all the features and seemed to map into Django, did I go, okay, I want to talk about this thing and, and here's my design. And when was that? Uh, so that would have been probably, it was a June 2015. So, you know, a little over a year ago, I posted this first blog post about this is what I think the challenge facing Django is. The blog post is called Beyond Request Response. That's kind of my sort of encapsulation of the whole thing. Like, this is what I want to do. This is my rough outline. And then sort of, it starts with a proposal to the Django community of like, this is the major fundamental change the way Django works, I would like to do. Mm. Like, and it's changed the way Django runs views. And like, that's where the discussion started. Like, well, you know, Andrew has this crazy idea. Let's talk about it. Um, and then at Django Under the Hood that year in November 2015, um, I wasn't talking, but like a good half of the talk seemed to at some point mention channels. I think at that point, I sort of like had some idea that it may have been a, like a very popular thing, like, like sort of like this growing already like interest in it and like what it could mean for Django was really starting to bubble up then. Let me push back a little bit and play devil's advocate because... Let me just say, first of all, I and I get excited about WebSockets too, and I and I write web apps, you know, for a living. But I've never actually had to use them, and I don't do games, so I'm I'm not saying there aren't there are use cases. Um, I just feel like can't we could we get away with long polling like maybe ninety five percent of the time, and then like sure like Slack needs to do WebSockets, but you know the rest of us are we can get by with long polling, can't we? Oh, absolutely. I I still recommend it for like. Several people come to me for advice saying, oh, like, what should I use sockets for? Like, no, this is probably a long polling thing. Or like, especially with HTTP2. So a little bit of background, um, H2 does not have WebSocket support because they maintain mm. that chunked responses are enough. Like the, the protocol is efficient as itself, but just sending requests and responses is as good as WebSockets is. Mm. Um, and that's why Channels is not just a WebSocket library. It's a, gen- it's yeah. a general asynchronous library. Like long polling still requires... The ability to hold open hundreds of connections at once that are all waiting on that long poll. And so the same challenges apply to long polling. They apply to having like hundreds of HTTP2 connections at once. Like the same kind of basic structure applies. Like I am very aware that WebSockets is a very niche thing. Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, it's not for every site. Maybe it could be if the JavaScript frameworks and we get a good pattern for that kind of stuff, like binding it into the models in the JavaScript side. But at the same time, like 
it's also this extreme of a whole spectrum of well, there are all these challenges, and yeah. just serving normal HTTP one one after the other is like the simplest thing, and like we've moved beyond that. Like long polling itself is is always is already difficult, and I think WebSockets and HTTP two are just the next step of that. Yeah. So what about so is Django uh, typically run on port eighty, or is it behind a proxy of some kind? I'm assuming there's people doing it both ways, but what's the typical way of running a Django in production? Yeah, it, it depends on the way you work. Like either you can run it embedded in like Apache with ModWizG, for example, uh-huh. um, or you can run a separate server, like much like you would with another, like say like a, a JavaScript server or a Ruby server, and then proxy to that through your through your um, web server. So, for example, Unicorn is a very popular um, server that you just run. It listens on a port, and then you just proxy through to that stuff as well. And so channels stays with the latter model um, of saying like, well, here is a separate server you run. That accepts both HTTP one, HTTP two, and WebSocket connections, and you can just proxy everything through to it and just forget about the rest of it. Um, or if you want to, you can switch different versions and so on and so forth. Huh. yeah, because I would think like it seems like H H two and maybe it's because I don't know the intricacies very well. Even though we had Ilya come on the show and tell us all the intricacies, but you know that was a long time ago and I can't remember. But. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It seems like can't that be something that you could implement at a, like at a proxy layer and then just keep your back end, you know, dumb or, you know, simple and like let your Nginx do your H2 stuff and like you can talk to it with H1 proxied. Of course. Yeah. So, so like you, you definitely can do that. It depends on what features you want. Right. So okay. the, the headline feature you might want from HTTP2 is that you can streamline multiple requests down the same single open socket to the web server. Mm-hmm. And if you're just doing that, then yes, you can just tell Nginx to take that, proxy it through as three separate requests to your backends, to three separate servers, and it will handle all that stuff for you. However, if you want the more advanced stuff of like, well, we want to send long polling chunk responses, you want to do server push, which is a feature of HTTP2, that uh-huh. stuff requires native support in your framework. Like you can't, like because they're not in the HTTP1 abstraction, you can't just sort of paper them over. You have to have like native support for that stuff to pull it off. That makes sense. And then probably like the server push aspect of H2 is is why they say that you don't need WebSockets anymore because you can still achieve the bi-directional communication that WebSockets well, affords. Is that, is, that, is that the case? That's a common misconception, at least far, as far as I know. So server push, okay. server push um, as specified, at least from what I've read, I may be wrong on this, is just a way of pushing resources to the browser before it asks for them. So think, for example, if you're living a web page, you'd server push the images, the CSS, and a few other things. So by, by the time I see, by the time it got to the full web page, it would go, "Oh, all these things are already in my cache," and would just immediately serve them. Um, the idea of doing uh, sort of pushing things to browse as responses is more just like a you can have an open response and send things down in a chunked fashion, um, okay. which is which is like server sent events. I think would maybe the the sort of more common way you describe that. But that's also a HTTP one point one thing as well. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I think just. The difficult naming there with server push. So what are the features in H2 that obviate the need for WebSockets? So, I mean, as, as far as... So I am personally on the on the fence here. I kind of think they would still be useful. Like, WebSockets uh-huh. have a lot of nice things about them. Um, but the argument goes that because you have efficient chunk responsing, like server-sense events, that, that's your server-to-browser um, part of the direction, as you were. Okay. And then because requests are so much more efficient like headers are compressed properly and like there's all binary protocol that you can just send normal ajax requests to the server and oh. that counts as your inbound okay and, they, they, and they, that, that's just enough you know and 
maybe it is yeah. like you know like and like one of the things i'm looking at for channels is like um things like abstractions like um socket io and stuff like that and sock.js of like is there a good way we can implement those same abstractions and reuse those libraries and have a layer that lets you switch between both of those implementations and maybe you're just sticky to one for performance reasons but maybe you want all of them for compatibility so give us the status of channels where it stands in terms of development and involvement like is it is it in Django? Is it a is it a module that you that you do use? Give us the rundown on where it stands. Yeah, so right now it is a separate application. Um, I wouldn't say so. We usually call things third party applications that aren't part of Django, but that's not true of channels because channels is part of the Django project. So it is a first party pluggable application. So basically, it's a separate library install. You put it into your installed app setting in Django, which is where you put things apps that are loaded in. And then just it just works like it sort of overrides the server stuff for you, and then you can just import and start using it. And so it's it's done this way for a reason. So I did propose to put it into the current release of Django, Django 1.10, um, but there were some very uh, rightful questions raised about like the design and how like relatively immature it was at like less than a year old. And so um, I made the call at that point to keep it out of Django and develop it as a sort of third-party pluggable thing. And then maybe in a future release, we'd look to merge it in in much of the same way that South got merged in to become Django migrations in Django 1.7. Mm. Okay. One last question for you, just with regard to kind of the ecosystem of channel implementations across these different frameworks. So feel free to dodge this one if you aren't familiar with like how Phoenix does channels or how Rails's action cable works. But if you are familiar with those two at least or any of the others and how they're going about uh, implementing channels in their frameworks, you know, how is Django channels different or better? It seems like at least the scope is larger because it's got the H2 aspect of it, but uh, I'll let you answer it. Yeah, so the major difference to a lot of the common ones is that it is it is a scope thing. And like part of that is making up for Python's deficiencies. So some of the languages already have a good solution for handling asynchronous uh, IO. And certainly Python 3.5 does as well. Um, but the idea of like, how do you write, because Django is a synchronous framework. We could, like making Django asynchronous would be a, a massive like undertaking so we can't we can't do that at least in the short term and so the difference there is like, like it's much more of a more of an overarching designer like how do we run a system that is asynchronous across multiple different machines like channels is by its very nature network transparent so if you're familiar with go at all um like go channels are kind of like one of the patterns django channels is modeled after like they do like it is a data structure you put things into, stuff comes out of the other end, and it does like thread pooling properly. And the idea was that even if you have a language that supports multiple processors, that's still not good enough for most websites. Most websites are like these whole racks of servers or you know, loads of machines in this huge cluster. And I guess channels, the idea was to have a design that would enable you to write asynchronous systems across a network. And in that way, it's a very ambitious project in that way. Like mm. at the base of it, it's a distributed like communication and, and queuing system like the django part of it is sort of the nice sort of pretty websocket build on top but underneath there is a whole right. underlying set of libraries that, that are separate libraries if you want to use them of this is how you can do asynchronous coordination and communication between different processes and it's all based on a language called uh, csp which is a sort of old academic proof language for um concurrent programming which i got taught in university much to my regret then now much to my uh, like it's much better for me now actually using it but like it's all sort of based on this like idea of like how do we write a system that handles all of this stuff together and like in that sense it's a bit more far-ranging than other solutions but also mm -hmm. 
some other solutions don't have to have like they don't have to solve the same problems in their language, say that some other things do. But then again, all languages ultimately, apart from say maybe Erlang, are fundamentally single machine. And so right. I think the problem still applies to other languages. And like one of the things I would love to do if it proves out and works well is like look at how we could have intercompatibility across languages with this kind of like message passing solution. Like could there be a way mm. here of a more general protocol of like making things talk to each other? And then like maybe solving some of the microservices headache people have, like, well, we can write this thing in other languages and so on and so forth. Well, it's no wonder to me that so many people are excited about uh, your channels project, even though, uh, you know, you, you keep using the word boring. I would say it seems exciting <laughs> and, and, and ambitious as well. Any final thoughts on channels before we move on to the next topic? Um, I think I just want to say is like, if people are looking at channels, like I'd rather, I'd like them to look at the idea, like just like, the thing I want to say really is channels probably isn't for everyone. Like one of the many things, like migrations when I wrote it was for everyone. Like yeah. almost every company has a database of schemas in it. Um, real-time communication is not for everyone. But what I would like people to think about is like, not just WebSockets, but like as their company grows, as they expand out, like will you grow dedicated hardware or will you grow other things like Think about things that will go beyond like your just normal web request response model. Like just start thinking about like what would that look like? You know, as as Eventbrite as a company, we move into like actual physical hardware and stuff like that as well. Like we have this problem, but even like the Internet of Things is coming up and, and all that kind of stuff. Like we have a growing set of problems of like things aren't just normal browsers anymore. They're not not just like, you know, IE4 sends a request, gets a response, job done. Like and just like try and bear in mind like what's the best tool for that job. Well said. So switching gears a little bit, um, you mentioned a couple of projects. Uh, of course, the channels project, the big one. You also had, uh, what was the name of your migrations? Uh, South. South was the right? Yeah. Yeah, South, which got merged into Django. And uh, you've been working on you know the Django core team for a while now. And so you have some experience with uh, long-term projects and sustainably funding open source projects, which is always a yeah. hot button topic for us. Share a story with us. It looks like you've had a couple Django features which you've managed to get funded the development of. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, I, I've been unusually like lucky. Well, lucky slash well fortunate in that regard. Like, so the the first thing I got money for, um, I'm one of the first uh, open source funding things I actually heard of. Um, so when South was still a third party app at the time, um, I wanted to merge it into Django, and that is a lot of work. Um, it was actually basically a full rewrite of the code, pretty much, and so. I turned to Kickstarter and I went, okay, I need around 3,000 pounds, US pound, I need about 3,000 UK pounds sterling um, to do to pull this off. Like in my spare time, I had a day a week free. Like that, my, my freelance rate would end up about that. And so I, I did a Kickstarter. So I'm like, hey, this is a single feature. There's a clear defined end goal of it's in Django. Mm. Would you like to give some money? And the response to that was, overwhelmingly positive i think i raised almost eighteen thousand pounds wow from a target of two and a half i think it was and so like i was very fortunate that the community really rallied behind that and like that gave me the funding and the time to basically merge it in considerably faster than i would otherwise been able to and like just spend some of my freelancing time directly on that stuff and that was that was really nice um and so that was good for, for the south feature and then for channels um there's a different approach so uh mozilla have a project called the Mozilla Open Source Support Grant System, uh, MOSS for short. And what they do is Mozilla are doing this wonderful thing of 
giving money to open source projects that they rely on, which I wish every company really did, but that's a, that's an aside. And so I think it was Django under the hood last year. Um, we were having a sort of informal meeting of core developers and somebody went, oh yeah, there's this Mozilla thing that we should probably apply for. Like what, like, you know, for, and specifically the Mozilla thing was also for a new feature, something that you could specify and bound and say, okay, we're going to do this. This is the end goal. Here's a rough estimate of the time frame and the cost and, and then apply. And so I, I sent an application and we were very fortunate to get given the money, uh, 150,000 US dollars, which is a lot of money to, to, to know what to do with in many cases. And that was the estimate of the amount of work for both channels and also some Django REST framework integration to Django as, as well, sort of is still ongoing. And so that was a sort of also a sort of single lump sum raise, but from, from a, a company rather from the public, although Mozilla is a very mm-hmm. public thinking yeah. company in many ways. And so both of those, like, I've been really honored to have the public and, and Mozilla both be happy and confident in my proposals and my work to pull those things off. And the channel's money is more than sufficient to pay both, you know, the time it takes to develop the main part of the project, but also like, you know, we are paying individual developers for features. Like, like we have a list of big features on, on the GitHub issue tracker. And like, if you want to work on one, you can send in a, a small proposal. We have a small team of, um, DSF and Django members who'll sort of vet it and make sure you have like a relatively decent history and then just approve you to work on it. And then we'll pay you your going daily rate to work on that stuff. And like, as a sustainable way of doing open source, I really like this. Like it's a way of saying like, we can pay you to do what you are normally paid to do and write good software. Mm. And I really, really like that as, as a way of doing this stuff. And like, we've already had like, I think six or seven major um, features being paid for, um, through this program and we have a few more that i'm sort of trying to rustle up people to, to do um it's sometimes surprisingly hard to find people to pay money to it turns out uh yeah. but we, we're getting we're getting there so that, that's been a really nice way of doing it have you formalized the process much then since you've done it so many times i mean i've done it twice so oh, i thought you said five. <laughs> oh, you mean for the, the channel yes no, we, we have a formalized channels one from the start so like we uh django as it grows the project um we like having formal ways of doing things. So like there's no skirting around the problem or like sort of especially when money's involved, like, you know, accusations of fraud right. or, or favoritism. So like we have a neutral committee that I'm not on that approve that stuff. And there's a process where like, you, like I work with the person to have a proposal. We put it the, to the committee, they discuss it and then come up with the result. And then the D, we have a separate sort of structure already for Django called the DSF, the Django Software Foundation. They handle the money and the payouts and stuff as well. Wow. So it's all, it's all very well formalized. I'm, I'm very happy with like how above board and like understandable it is. Like that, that It's very hard to accuse us of favoritism in that respect. It's an interesting way to, to do money raises. And, and I guess compare that to, you know, features in Ruby. If you, if you even might, might know like other languages, how do other people do what they do? Is it just free open source, just uh, people's hard work and there's no money or, you know, what's generally the way other camps do it? Well, I mean, this is the general problem in open source. Like funding is a general problem in open source throughout the, across the board. Like not only in Django and Python, like, you know, obviously those features I mentioned were funded. Um, two other things in the Django world also been funded. Um, so we had uh, Postgres specific fields and stuff funded for Mark Tamlin. That was amazing. And we had Django REST framework stuff funded as well, um, both Kickstarters in those cases. And but there's also a general problem of like there are other Django features that are still done purely by volunteers. Um, our security team is still purely volunteers. Um, thankfully, we do have we have a full time paid uh, Django fellow, and his job is to do all our bug triaging and like keep things going and like 
it should be like they just keep things flowing and do security releases and that kind of stuff. But it's a general problem in open source. And like one of the one of the things I, I like to look at and consider is like how do we keep open source as a whole community going? Like how do we fund all this software that the world really does rely on? Like, you know, certainly, yeah. Like Nginx and other things, like are the core of an astonishing number of systems. Like even you know, Linux and Nginx, like there are commercial branches to some of those people. Like, you know, Red Hat employs some kernel engineers, Nginx has a commercial arm, but there are a lot of other projects. Like um, OpenSSL was one of the most recent ones, right? Like, like there was like a couple of people working on that and they weren't really paid very much at all. And that library is like one of the most critical parts of security infrastructure we have in the world. And like, so like in general, like I'm trying to help, like, I guess not raise awareness so much as like trying to work out what is a, a more sustainable solution for ongoing maintenance. Like what I did was raising money for a single feature that you can define. And you say like, this is what we're doing. It's got a bounded time. It, it finishes by this date. But in general, like you need money for like fixing security holes and doing code audits and keeping things maintained properly and looking at issues and all the stuff that like it seems very like plain on the surface and no one wants to fund it individually but it's still a very important part of maintaining good software and that's really why i'm interested in like for django especially like because that's what i'm involved in but also like in the general sphere like how can we get a pattern of that that works well well i i guess before we close the show though maybe give some advice you had a, a successful kickstarter You've done this at least a couple of times. You've thought about ways to formalize it. Give people that are listening to this show some advice, ways to replicate some successes you've had, whether it's that Kickstarter or other models you're thinking of. What are some, some ways that other open source camps can replicate what you've done well? Yeah, that's a good question. Like it's, in some ways, it's tricky. Like the, the South Migrations one in particular was very much a time and place thing. Like I had been working on that project for seven-ish years at that point unpaid. And so I see that one more as a pressure relief of like people have been using it for so long that they very fortunately came out and said, oh no, we've already used this. We know it's good. We're going to pay you money in retrospect in a way is what happened. Um, but I think also part of it was like being very clear about like what you're trying to accomplish, I think was very important. And also like giving something that people wanted. Like it's bad advice for what I just said about like maintenance and that kind of stuff. But like, you know, at the end of the day, open source needs some PR. It needs some like advertising and business logic. Like you need to understand how to make people want to give you money, be it businesses who have a different set of reasons to individuals, but like both of them, mm-hmm. you have to appeal to them on their own level. Like find the things that businesses, businesses want, find the things that people care about and appeal to those. Like if enterprises want like support contracts or stability, maybe you can frame the conversation around like, well, you can pay for a support contract that actually funds all the security stuff. If individuals want a new feature that sounds really exciting, maybe you could frame it around that new feature. But like you'd still need to consider that you're still appealing to people and business with their own opinions and their own thoughts. And that's why you've got to really like think about your writing and what you're saying and make sure and you know people well, who are you focusing though? Are you focusing on businesses? You focus on the general public at that point? In a Kickstarter's general public, so well, not just, but it's not though. So the Kickstarter I did, over half the money was on the high end tiers from big companies, right? Okay. So like it had this cross, this cross appeal, but it really depends on the software. Like if you're writing, like you know, archiving and checking software, that's probably more a business thing. If you're writing like exciting, like home automation software, that might be more personal. But it it really depends, and like yeah, it's unfortunately like both both times I've done this. I have had the advantage of, and it's definitely a, a sort of almost unfair advantage of 
I have a good history of implementing things. And like people go, oh, yes, that's Andrew. He's pretty trustworthy with this stuff. Like we know he understands it. And even with channels, I came in with like, you know, I'd spent a year working right. on prototypes. I had working code at that point. And so I'm sure that helped swing a little, at least a little bit, like coming in with some work already done. And that's not necessarily sustainable. Like it is a privilege to have free time to work on open source in the first place. And I would love to find a way of, of fixing that, that dichotomy of like, we shouldn't just have people who have the privilege of like not having children or not having partners or whatever, how there's time to work on open source. Um, and if the only answer is you have to come to the table with something in the first place, that's still not really helping them. It helps certainly, but it's not solving that problem. Yeah. And so like I, I had like an unfair leg up in that, in that situation. Well, before we close out, is there anything that we didn't get to ask you about Django, Python, channels, the community, documentation first, uh, different things that are tried and true for the community you, you, you're a part of? Anything you want to say? So I, I'm going to put in here a really good word for the Python community because I came to Python in 2006 and I am still a very proud member of the community because of the level of friendliness and help and outreach and just niceness that you get from all parts of the community. Like, you know, uh, especially over the last, the last few years, it's made great strides in being more opening and welcoming as well. And like, like going to PyCon, going to DjangoCon, like they're just great places to go. And so like, I honestly, I would say like, if you run an open source project, I, I, I would advise you don't just consider the technical part of a project, but the community is a really important part of it as well. Like have positive discussions, welcome people, especially beginners, like beginners are your lifeblood of an open source project. Like a beginner today is a core developer tomorrow, right? Like welcome people and try and yeah. help develop them as people. And like that, if we all did that, I think the world would be a better place for open source. On that note, I have to mention request for commits because we've been talking about uh, drive-by contributions, con contributor onboarding, all sorts of things on that show. It's the human side of code. It's about sustainably running open source, forming open source, businesses and licensing, all those fun things around it. So, you know, to you, Andrew, if you haven't listened to it yet, go to changelaw.com slash RFC. You'll find the show there or the vanity URL, RFC.com, or sorry, it's .fm, RFC.s. I can't even get it out. You can do it. RFC.fm. I promise. I got it right. Um, it, it's been a blast producing that show. We actually just did a show that's coming out soon with Brendan Ike. And I'm not even kidding you for like an hour and plus a little bit. We got like the history of the internet and how we got here in terms of browsers and motivation from companies like Google and Microsoft and others. Uh, Mozilla, of course. Uh, but he couldn't talk much about that because there's <laughs> reasons why. Um, but a great history, not only of like the role JavaScript played in it, but how open source has been funded or is being funded and living based on uh, this history of browsers. So that's a great show to listen to on that note of, of what you just mentioned there. But uh, that's all we have for today's show. Uh, anything else you want to mention? Any any last minute shout outs? Uh, no. If, if you're interested in channels, go to uh, channels.readthedocs.io. And if you're interested in Django, go to djangoproject.com. There's plenty of documentation of both those to look at. And we'd love to have you come and work on stuff. Cool. All right. With that, let's, uh, let's call this show done and say goodbye. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you, Andrew. Bye.